The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. For this week's edition, I spoke to my colleagues Amy Donnellan in Ireland and Neil Unmack in London about the halting efforts to deliver COVID-19 vaccinations in Europe. Having just gotten back from the U.S., where just about everyone I saw was either jabbed already or had their first shot scheduled, I wanted to understand better why things are so far behind the U.S. and the U.K., on the European continent, including here in Switzerland. As you'll hear, it's a combination of factors, starting with the limited supply of vaccines. But there also appears to be something deeper, a kind of mistrust in general of vaccinations in parts of Europe. And there is what looks like a sort of general risk aversion, which may explain the panic in recent days over side effects stemming from the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. To be honest, I think there's something else at work. It may come down to the differing appetites for managing risk among developed societies. That determines their willingness or lack thereof to embrace innovation, put their faith in technology, and entrust non-state institutions like corporations and drug companies to act in good faith. After that, I chat with Jen Hughes in Hong Kong to get her read on some recent restructuring moves at the historic Hong Kong trading firm of Jardine Matheson. As Jen points out, with the increasing influence of mainland China, Hong Kong tycoons are no longer each other's top challenges. In fact, Jardine's long overdue haul is a nod to that. Give a listen. Amy Donnellan, welcome from Galway, Ireland. And Neil Unmack, hi, good to see you from London. So uh, you guys have been writing frantically about this, the issue of vaccines. In particular, this week, we've seen a number of European countries having a bit of a panic about the AstraZeneca uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And in fact, on Wednesday, we had uh, the head of the European Commission, uh, von der Leyen, basically come out and say that there may, they may even want to put more controls on the export of the very vaccines that they're afraid to deliver into the arms of their people. Amy, break this down. What What's going on here? So this all started really last week. Um, there started to, a number of countries, Austria, Norway, Ireland, um, were basically seeing cases of a kind of uh, blood clots that they were concerned about in people who had taken the AstraZeneca vaccine. And then they started to suspend the use of that vaccine. And there was a, an awful lot of news going around about this. It was very unclear what was happening. So the European Medicine Agency yesterday uh, made a statement, um, talked about the risk rewards of the vaccines and are, are doing their own review, um, looking at all the science and the data, and they're going to come out with that tomorrow. Uh, but this all centers around this AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been in the news for lots of different reasons, much more so than we've seen from other vaccines. They had to stop their trial um, last year due to an adverse event. Um, there was issues between Britain and Europe over um, kind of the hoarding of the vaccine. And so it has been actually in, in the news for lots of lots of bad reasons. Um, Right. And, and Neil, I mean, but in the UK, lots of people have been taking this. In fact, I mean, this is what, one of the funny things. This is a backdrop to this. U Europe is way behind uh, the mm. UK when it comes to vaccine. I think the, the latest numbers I, I see here suggest that about 10 per 100 people have been given um, a vaccine 
in in the European Union relative to the United Kingdom, where it's something like, I mean, it's almost 40%. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's nearly 40%. And a lot of that is, in fact, to do with the AstraZeneca vaccine, because it's the cheapest and and the easiest to use of the vaccines that have currently been, been approved. And the UK has managed to lock down enormous supplies of it, um, but by virtue of, um, of collaborating very closely with AstraZeneca. Um, and indeed, I'm, you know, I'm one of the people who's taken it um, and, and you know, haven't... Uh, and you don't yet. seem to have, you don't have a blood clot. I hope you don't have that on, this, on this yeah, podcast, Neil. Maybe it's just waiting. Yes, but so the UK, the UK program has been very successful and, and it's, it's interesting as to, to sort of why that is. It seems to be that the, the government um, collaborated very closely with industry, put in charge a, a woman who was from industry, who was a venture capitalist um, and threw a lot of money at the problem. Um, and and that, that has worked out pretty well. And, and the European Commission um, does not seem to have, have managed to pull that off. So it's so in, uh, at the first, it's a supply problem. It, it, we have the AstraZeneca issue, which is of the supply that the European Union states have, a lot of it comes from AstraZeneca. There now, there's now a concern that it might have side effects, even though that doesn't seem to be yet the the view from the scientists or the regulators. Um, but it, so it's a supply problem, is that it? But but I guess it comes down to like, well, why is there why is this problem happening now? Why did they why didn't they do what the UK did, um, or the US, in, indeed, Amy? If, if I might jump in with that, I mean, essentially what happened was, as Neil said, the UK put in very early orders. It didn't have to gain approval from other countries. Uh, it kind of unilaterally decided to what vaccines it was going to go for, put in orders for as many as it could. The US did something very similar. And then we saw countries like Germany and France and Italy trying to do that, and then basically they decided that the EU as a whole were going to put in an order. And that was about three or four months after Germany and Italy and France had asked initially to put in an order. So they were very much delayed. And then because of that delay, AstraZeneca, the way the vaccine is made, is almost a bit like making beer. It's a fermentation process. So you can have a bad batch. And then that's what we saw with the AstraZeneca vaccine that was destined for European citizens was that the batch was just lower than they expected. And so then Europe kind of started this fight with the UK that they had so much less than the UK did and you, the UK should be sending really these vaccines to Europe. Um, and that just kind of started a spat that really the UK didn't seem to get very much involved in. Um, and again, as you said, Ursula von der Leyen is talking today um, about the fact that they could have reciprocal relationships. They would only export the vaccines that are made in the EU to countries that they are actually getting vaccines from. And it wasn't but really clear who that was targeted at. But, but given that the, the Europeans have had such a problem with supply of vaccines, what, why do you think they have been so particularly you know, more cautious regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine than, than the UK? What's, how, do we sort of, how do we sort of explain that? It is hard to explain that. Uh, I mean, I think vaccine experts that, you, that I would speak to would say that it is normal to see a reactions to vaccines, a very small amount. Um, the European Medicine Agency did say that they thought that this was actually a relatively normal number of people getting blood clots that you would see in the general population. Um, so it, it's not really understandable why they are so kind of risk averse with AstraZeneca. And also there have been reports of Moderna and Pfizer of similar blood clots in people who have taken those vaccines in the US. Um, and they obviously haven't taken the, these mm -hmm. kind of precautions. Now, the one thing I would say is that the German health ministry did come out with some data yesterday uh, trying to explain the suspension, and they did suggest that the numbers were higher 
of blood clots, particularly in younger women, than they would typically see in the general population, and that was their that was their reason for suspending it. But not necessarily alarmingly higher, just a no. slight uptick. And I mean, this is sort of gets back to that question that I've been grappling with, which is you know, with just sort of risk appetite, right? If you think about that, as Neil described, the way the UK government very quickly put its faith in science, innovation, and industry, got a venture capitalist to make the decision. It's not that different from Operation Warp Speed under the Trump administration, which essentially said, okay, we're gonna bet on whatever it is, 10 horses, throw that money each, all we need is one of them to come back. That's that venture capital idea, right? Out of, out of your, your, not, your 10 bets, all you need is one of them to just be a complete and utter home run and you're fine. And you just wonder if there isn't, or Israel is another example. I mean, Israel has now back, has now delivered 110 or so jabs per 100 people. The, the, the number is higher than the number of people because some of the, many of the jabs, the Pfizer ones require too. But you, you end up with this sort of their way ahead. But these are three countries, the US, UK, Israel, which embrace risk generally. Yeah. They, you know, if you think about patents per people, or you think about the creation of of tech companies. Remember, you know, there's, I'm always hearing in Europe um, policymakers complaining to me about why doesn't you know how many conferences have you been to where they say that the subject is where is Europe's Google or where is Europe's uh, Microsoft and or uh, Alibaba? And I just wonder if this isn't reflective the response, say, of the European Union, which is to be more cautious, to focus very quickly on protection and regulation, isn't kind of reflective of the way those societies, societies think. What do, you, what do you posit, Amy? I mean, I think with France, they've seen quite a low uptake of the vaccine as well. That is a problem. And in Germany, they've seen that as well. And particularly, interestingly, of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So there is the comments that, they're, that you're seeing from a lot of leaders in Europe about vaccines is that they have to have trust in vaccines, that the public have to trust these vaccines. And so they're kind of straddling this line of obviously trying to vaccinate as many people as possible. And that's what needs to be done in order to kind of get ahead of these variants that are kind of emerging now, which, which actually could really kind of circumvent these vaccines. Um, but at the same time, they're, they are having to, I guess, they're really having to kind of reassure the public. And they seem to think that by suspending the vaccines, even if it is for just a few days before they get ultimate clearance from the European regulator, um, that somehow that may encourage more people. That would be, I would imagine, the thinking. But I'm yeah, interested you, to know, Rob, what, what your kind yeah. of experience well, so is. Well, the thing that they are, yeah, that they act, that they are super prudent and therefore their citizens should have more faith in their vaccine program. It does seem to be having the opposite effect, doesn't it? And that people yeah. will just be more nervous about taking uh, the vaccines in the future. Yeah, so um, Amy, you're asking about the US. Well, yeah, yeah. Your, your kind of experience there. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll give you a little first person. I was in the States for two weeks and I, I, I had vax envy. Um, I was hanging out with friends in Connecticut and New York and everyone seemed to have either been vaccinated, gotten, had their first or even their second shot, or certainly was knew the data in which they were getting them, um, which surprised me because here in Switzerland, it's again a country the size of of Israel has only done ten per hundred or so versus the hundred and ten in Israel. I was shocked, and and I immediately was like, okay, well, I need to get my backs too. Got and uh, rooted around, found uh, through the, the state of New York, where I still keep an apartment. So I'm a resident there. I was able to get this vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson one, at the Javits Center on Sunday, which is a giant conference center. 
Um, I was one of about 6,000 people that morning that got the, the vaccination. And I have to tell you, having had lost a bit of faith over the last year about America's ability to handle the crisis, in this, this was somewhat restored seeing the, um, the way that they handled this, the, the speed with which I was able to get it. And what was interesting is talking to the staff there, it was clear that they, uh, they didn't even really care that much about whether, what my, the reason I was able to get it being under 55 was because of pre-existing condition. And I had a letter from an endocrinologist stating that off. They don't really care. They're just like, you're here, you've made the effort, get in line, get a jab. I have a 23-year-old son who is getting one in Brooklyn tonight, um, and he and all legit. You just have to tell them that you know he, he happens to work and deal with a mailroom in his new you know two week into his, two weeks into his new job. Um, it is fascinating. They just want you to get it done, and there is this faith and this embrace in these in both vaccinations and technology, which is kind of funny when you see um, America uh, having been sort of anti-science. <laughs> to some degree over the past few years. And there's certainly going to be this holdout of uh, largely uh, Trump supporters who seem to believe they shouldn't, even though the president, the ex-president has said that they should um, get vaccinated. But it is, it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm wondering, I, I guess when I think about it, this is all said and done, whether or not there will be something we can learn about the way certain countries or societies approach risk, the way they approach innovation and uh, and whether or not there's something to be learned from that. The UK the UK approach to taking risk has, has worked in some areas and not worked in other, other so areas. So where has it failed? So the UK tried to build a complete test and trace system from scratch and outsource that to the experts, you know, the um, the, the, the big large contracting firms. Um, and and that, that took a long time to get going and didn't work very well. Um, so but who got you know, that right? I mean, apart from South Korea and maybe Taiwan. Germany, um, yeah. supposedly, yeah. Um, which had a larger existing infrastructure in place. So, the, what we, so you, you know, a lot of companies, countries like Germany, maybe they're really good at rules, enforcing rules. I mean, they're all, and as you, I think you, you mentioned before, I mean, like everybody's, you're in Ireland, you're back in a lockdown. Uh, if you look at, if France is now considering basically shutting Paris on the weekends, and Italy is now going into three weeks of of pretty severe lockdown, not unlike what it went through one year ago. Um, yeah. What you want to combine is some sense of knowing how to how to manage and regulate and do the rules, but at the same time, be able to take risk, embrace technology. I don't know. But I mean, I, I'm in Ireland, I'm in the EU. Um, I think, of, you know, my mother is over 70, has no appointment for a vaccination. We're in lockdown until June. There's a huge amount of anger uh, among the general population. And so this idea that you would have vaccinations, <clears throat> excuse me, that you would have vaccinations that you would stall against the kind of advice of regulators, I think could be something that could cause problems in lots of European countries where there is actually elections coming down the line over the next few months. Um, I mean, Italy, as you said, has been in lockdown longer than any other country. They started before everybody else and now they're heading into their third one um, so it is, it is, it is a, a problem. I think that that is going to have have an impact on how Europe reopens and how delayed it is. Well, we'll and certainly see it. Yeah, yeah, and we'll certainly see a big divergence in economic, uh, you know, growth numbers in the next. You know, the U.S. is going to be in U.K. I hope will be a good quarter or two ahead of Europe in in 
bouncing back out of this. And you can already start to see that. I guess, Neil, the only thing, the only caveat to all of this is you, you got the AstraZeneca shot. I got the Johnson & Johnson shot. Uh, Amy, you haven't gotten yours yet? I haven't, but it was funny because I was asked this question by somebody, would I, given the, the concerns about younger women that are having these blood clot issues, would I take it? And the truth is I would, because I think the data that you're seeing around COVID is if you get COVID, you have a one in a hundred chance, it looks like, of dying. Um, so those are actually quite high numbers. Um, and hospitalizations, all of those things, I mean, being on a ventilator and the idea that it's it's so minute, the, the, the threat of this, and they haven't even linked it yet. So I would definitely be in the camp of so you're a risk. You're a risk manager. That's it. You, you, you've assessed it. But I think as, as so long as as Neil and I do not develop, um, I don't know, grow a third arm out of our backside or uh, come down with something over the next few months, I think I think we're going to look back and uh, I think we'll learn some lessons about about that, all of this stuff. Um, and hopefully that'll inform particularly the European Union, which has to figure out how how to, to move more agilely and to figure out how to embrace technology in a way that I think is better. Um, but anyway, okay, thank you guys. Uh, stay healthy and talk to you soon. Thank you. Jen, good to see you in Hong Kong, or good to hear from you in Hong Kong, I should say. So you've written a couple of stories that uh, really uh, excited our readers. They've been reading these stories about uh, the Jardine Matheson uh, restructuring, as it were. This is one of those stories that I remember back when we started Breaking Views 20 years ago. We were writing about uh, uh, Brandis, uh, the U.S. investment fund, trying to get them to reshuffle and, and, and do something with their assets. They have finally done it. So what's actually happening here? Why is it taking so long? Well, I think people like reading about Jardines because they make it so difficult for people to write stories about them normally. <laughs> they're big, they're important, but they like to fly under the radar. And one of the reasons they don't get more investor attention or public investor attention is because of that structure that they're just on, that they're now unwinding. This idea that you had two cross-holding companies which owned massive majority stakes in both. And they've now finally unwound this. They set it up in the 80s and people have been gunning for it since then. But it took until now. And That's when you say they're big, big and important, let's sort of step back. What, what, why do we care about the sort of the Keswick family holdings in Hong Kong and, and beyond? Well, it's not just because I reckon some of our readers will have read or will have watched the 1980s miniseries Noble House starring <laughs> Pierce Brosnan, which is about the family, more or less. I think they care because the name is so storied and because have actually done a pretty good job on in investing terms over the last 20, 30 years. Their return on investment, I don't have the figures right in front of me, certainly beats some of the other trading houses in Asia. And people know a lot of their things. In Hong Kong, you've, you'll have walked through a Hong Kong land building. They've owned chunks of Central, which is the Central Business District, for 100 plus years now. Mm -hmm. um, Mandarin Oriental Hotels is theirs. They own Astra, the biggest conglomerate, or they control Astra, the biggest conglomerate in Indonesia. So they have this big sprawl of assets, which in theory would be open to more activist attention. Right. So, so they've got this big, and, and they, it goes back, right? So, I mean, the, the family, the Keswick family is one of these, what are they, Scottish or something that kind of basically the foreigners, as it were, who built Hong Kong, as the Hong Kong as we know it. 
Yes, um, they don't really mention the opium trading origins to begin with. But that's Shh, quiet, was. quiet about the opium. Let's not mention the opium. <laughs> they've been traders in Hong Kong since it became a British colony. Um, and the current generation are, I think, the fifth and sixth. The Keswick's, the family that control it now, are descendants of William Jardine, the founder. You write about the Scottish and their logo is a stylized sort of Scottish thistle. Right. Okay. So the, the, and, and it's interesting when you think about what's happening with Hong Kong with the increasing sort of Chinification, as in mainland Chinification. Um, you think about about their spread of assets. Is there is that is there some read through or corollary with what's happening in the wider world as to why they're doing this sort of restructuring now? The business mix has been slowly changing. I mean, this is Jardine, so nothing usually happens fast at all. The, the collected wisdom in the 90s was that Jardines was making a push uh, towards Southeast Asia because they, had, you know, they weren't always on best terms with China, while a rival trading company like Swire Pacific was going full tilt for China. This was in the run, the run up to the handover of Hong Kong in 97. But that's not really true because they have a lot of interest there and Hong Kong is still central to them. I think the plain reason for this now, and they have said as much, is because they've been buying back the shares in Jardine, Matheson and Strategic, that only buying 15%, they've maxed out their buybacks. So it gives the overall family 43% control or 43% holding in Jardine, Matheson. So it's not majority, but they clearly felt comfortable. And does this keep, uh, I mean, in the back in the day when, when Brandis was was kind of knocking on their doors and, and now we're in the age of, 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 of full activism, is this sort of also an attempt, a defensive move on their part rather than offensive one and trying to, you know, reduce discounts and things like that? You could see it that way. I mean, they're pretty straightforward. Um, their annual reports are about 150 pages long. That's half of what I normally end up reading in any other company. They, they don't ever say too much, but they're quite straightforward with what they do say. So this fits in with that. They're doing it now because they can't buy more of strategic. Um, and as you see, Jardine Matheson shares jumped straight away because the right. discount to net asset value shrunk quite a lot, very, very quickly on the back of this deal. So that is part of a defense against a full scale activist attack for sure. Right, right. I mean, it has reduced the discount the, to, to the assets, right? But I have wondered if you're kind of, if by doing this, you're signaling that you are more open to change than perhaps you were, what, 20 years ago when Brandes had a go, and whether you might get activists who want to start nudging them towards things. Jardines doesn't like doing things publicly. So I'm sure it has been, I know it has plenty of conversations with investors behind the scenes. Um, so the potential for someone to come along and say, hey, look at this, why are you doing this? And perhaps there's more openness on the part of the company to looking at some of these things. But we'll, we'll wait another 20 years to see the effect of today's uh, pressures. <laughs> Almost certainly. Well, by, by then you and I will have um, met up at the captain's bar, I hope, at the Mandarin uh, and had a drink uh, to discuss this and other stories. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you.
That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.